This is Clint Jansen with Maui Real Estate Radio, and I have my co-host today, Byron Yap of Axia Home Loans. And today we have special guest, Mike Molina. Uh, Mike Molina, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Hello. Thanks a lot, Clint and Byron. Um, I'm Mike Molina. I'm um, completing my seventh term on the county council. Um, prior to getting into politics, I was a former public school teacher, and I've always had a passion for civics and anything related to government. So I'm uh, just glad to be back now serving on the council. And, and also, I also served as an executive assistant for Mayor Arakawa. So I guess I've just uh, been very blessed to have uh, served in two occupations that I love, teaching and politics. And a long time Maui family, too. You've been here generationally. <laughs> yeah, we've been around uh, all over the place. I had a couple of uncles that served on the county council and the old board of supervisors back in the 1960s and 70s. So I guess you could say it's, it's in the blood. And yeah, just happy to serve. Also, the that uh, Byron, I was also reading that thing about Casanovas, the Molina family, uh, when it was the U old, uh, USO before, and then you know it basically became you know selling eggs and stuff like that. That's awesome. You know, <laughs> I like the story. Came up the looking for the rodeo, and he's like, "Oh, I offered his horse a drink." <laughs> <laughs> All true. <laughs> Good stuff. So um, Byron Yap is with uh, Axia Home Loans, and I'm always very thankful for a co-host. Uh, one of the things I always like to talk about, you know, is um, when people come to me and they're looking to purchase a property. Um, and we get a lot of people through our website, MauiRealEstate.net. And it's actually one of the number one, you know, websites on the island for real estate. And it rivals even the bigger boys like Ax, uh, not Axia, one of the bigger boys like Trulia and Zillow. And the reason people like it is because it's a much more dynamic website and it's got a lot more features, especially with tax information that people can find. So um, right now with about 40,000 is our normal, we're closer to 50 at this point. And um, when people come through the very first thing, I'm like, get pre-qualified. Number one, get pre-qualified. And there's individuals who are like, oh, you know, I, um, I'm fine, you know, I have assets in the mainland, I'm, you know, I'm a partner with a bank, I can get a loan through them, no problem. And I'm like, look, catastrophic problems happen all the time in the lending process, you got to use a local lender. And the same thing with people that I know on island here, you know, many times they're going through and, you know, they're, they're working with another, you know, uh, like Quicken Loans or something like that, which is the worst possible that you could go on. I've had really bad luck with those, you know, just basically falling out and not going through the appropriate procedures. And there's many little idiosyncrasies about the processes of recording here that other loan officers in the mainland don't get that really just destroy the process or complexes they don't understand with little idiosyncrasies that might have just like one or two units that have timeshare in it or something along those lines. So I'm always using a local lender and my top recommend has always been Byron Yap. Um, he's been fantastic. He's diligent. He's on top of it. But I got to warn people. I'm like, he's fast. He's going to say a lot of things and he's going to need a lot of answers. So. <laughs> he gets a lot done. That's for sure. How are things going right now? Very good. Um, you know, uh, as you know, we're in, we're in a hot market right now and rates are still low. I think that's what's driving it. You know, they're sitting around 3% or below on for purchases. So we're seeing, you know, a lot of pre-qualification happening. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of inventory out there. No. Yeah. It's the biggest issue that I'm dealing with right now for my buyers. What I end up doing is I'm out there finding the um, home for them. They tell me what they're looking for and it just doesn't exist. So I'm 
calling people in a very specific neighborhood or sending mailers out to them. Um, you know, I know some people then that are doing, you know, door knockers. I'm not, not a really big fan of visiting people. Like I'll send a mailer and I'll, you know, even do a voicemail or something like that. But uh, showing up on somebody's door is a little too much for me. Yeah. <laughs> but it's what you got to do to like, somebody is looking for a house you know, people are thinking about selling, but a lot of the properties aren't even going onto the market. They can see that, you know, hey, this is a, a local family. They want a place to live and um, they can see what the current, you know, prices are. And they, you know, they're feeling satisfied. A lot of times uh, it's just a bad idea for somebody to sell a house because where else are they going to go? And yeah. the only real opportunity for people right now to sell and buy is somewhere else in the mainland. Um, so, you know, I have seen a lot of families, unfortunately, moving off island. Um, but at the same time, sometimes it's been already in the cards. And with the way the, the being the most desirable place on the planet, we're getting a lot more people looking to buy a lot more people looking to buy than sell. And we haven't even started to see the Canadian buyers at this point, because, you know, there's yeah. half as many as we normally have, even less, because they can't come really enjoy the property at all. So it's, it's a really tough line. And with that, um, we've always tried to advocate for more affordable housing. And there's, of course, some companies out there in developments that do their best um, in order to create uh, affordable housing. Actually, uh, back, uh, Byron Yap, you used to work for some of the developers, right? Yes, I mean, we, I, I've been involved with some of the affordable for years, seen how it kind of worked from the start to the, to the end. It was an interesting process. And, you know, that's why I'm excited. We have Mike here. He's a, Mike Molina, our council mm -hmm. member, who's a strong advocate for affordable housing. Absolutely. It's essential. We, um, my family and I, one of the things that we really are, are proud of is that we helped uh, with the initial seed money for uh, Nahali Maui which is a community land trust. And mm -hmm. that's a really unique design for ownership of property because it's actually shared ownership between uh, Nahali O'Malley as well as the homeowner itself that's purchasing it. So it creates a, a, a leasehold situation and it keeps the property affordable in perpetuity, which that's something that you don't really hear ever on Maui. So yeah. the cool thing is, people almost, uh, what's like 70% of the time trade up into normal property ownership. So they have that, they learn how to, they take the classes and then they later on like five to eight to 10 years later, they trade into a normal, you know, uh, fee mm -hmm. simple property. So it's excellent. Habitat for humanity is wonderful, but there's really not a lot of mechanisms to have developers right now um, to create affordable housing because, you know, it's a, a square peg, round hole, and we have a lot of major difficulties to, you know, create affordable housing. The main thing is we're the most geographically isolated place on the planet. So, Mike, you want to tell us a little bit about what you've helped with? Okay. Well, oh, first, let, let, let me uh, inform you. I, I've got a bunch of chirping birds in the background, and so <laughs> no, don't no mind them. But but they tend to agree with me a lot. So whenever yeah, you hear that's them, good. No, no. <laughs> Well, the, on that subject, affordable housing, well, through the years, um, two things I initiated as charter amendments were the affordable housing fund. Um, that, that was uh, something that was really, uh, you know, important to create this dedicated fund 
or any uh, developer that they could tap into and use to offset their costs for affordable housing projects. And the other uh, piece of legislation, and that wasn't a charter amendment, that was just an ordinance we created, was the First Time Home Buyers Fund, where the county offers a uh, $20,000, $30,000 to help, help you with your down payment. And so that's helped. But obviously, we're in a crisis now. We still more, you know, more needs to be done. Uh, just recently, I tried to get an initiative. Uh, it was called Bill 10. It, it had to do with the 201H affordable housing process, which is a, a fast track process for developers to use. The re minimum requirement was 50% of the units had to be classified in the affordable housing price range. I uh, pushed for up to 75. Uh, it barely lost. Uh, we, we got it passed out of committee, but then the mayor vetoed it and we didn't get the necessary six votes to override the veto. So basically it, it would have had uh, developers, uh, the council could ask developers to provide up to 75%, but it was something that's negotiable. Um, now they could have gotten an exemption to get, get it at 50% depending on the project, but you know, to make a long story short, it was it was an attempt that because they're getting a lot of exemptions and fee waivers, my thought process was, well, can you offer a little more? So it met some a lot of resistance from the building community. There was some supporters. Uh, one developer told me he could do it for 68%. So I said, hey, that sounds better than 50%. But, you know, it, it didn't make it, but So it is happened. that like a required affordable development? So let's say you're you're building normal homes and half of those homes have to be on the affordable side. How did that bill work? Yeah. Uh, so, for example, if you're doing a hundred unit project, the current process is you have to put 50 percent in the affordable housing class, or mm -hmm. affordable housing range. In return, you would get fees waived and also uh, any uh, infrastructure you wouldn't be required to do. So it's a trade off. The developer saves money. But in return, half of those units have to be in the affordable uh, price range. Huh. My proposal was to make it 75 up to 75 percent. But, you know, many developers are telling me, you know, we can't pencil it out. So. But yeah, I'm always trying to push the envelope. The, the big thing too here is with the timeline associated to do a building. I mean, I know people that have been working on projects for, you know, 10 to 20 years. And the big difficulty of that is the holding costs for the property, in addition to the regular payments that you're making. So those mm -hmm. holding cost, uh, costs uh, accrue over time. And they, of course, end up getting, you know, passed on to the end buyer. I mean, they have particular margins that they have to meet. But, you know, at the end of the day, with the crazy, crazy cost of building and the limited supplies right now, it's next to impossible. You know, um, they've even halted certain projects in North Kihei that they've already had approved because they just couldn't afford to build it anymore. Um, you know, even with their ability to stagger and raise the prices, it just didn't really make any sense. So they're redrawing going back to the, the drawing board in order to, like, get a better price per square foot. Um, I've always wanted to see something more along the lines uh, to make it uh, incentivize the, the people to develop affordable housing. One of the problems with I, I've always seen when you ask or for somebody is it still doesn't get past the problem of just the high cost in the really long timeline to actually build something here because, you know, 10, 20 years is somebody's entire career in the building yeah. community. As the same goes, time, time is money, especially oh, in yeah. this business. I know and the county sometimes is at fault as, as far as our permit process, as well as you know going through the process of the planning commission, then you go to the council. So it does take time. So I can certainly understand uh, the concerns expressed by developers with, with regards to 
how long it takes to do a project and that's what maybe sometimes disincentivizes them to build. Yeah. And that's why they try to seek, you know, fast track processes like the 201H. I always wanted to actually uh, have it so that properties were more affordable or, or more profitable for the developer to make as opposed to the bigger properties. And the, I always felt that it needed a financial mechanism. And actually we talked about this um, with uh, Tina Wildberger, you know, of the Kihei district. Um, and uh, she had an interesting article that she created a while ago, back in 2019, about a transit-oriented development model. And uh, we had actually a, a pretty cool conversation. And uh, my thought was, is, you know, the biggest resource that Maui has is, you know, both fortunately and unfortunately, the tourism industry. It's, it's where we make the most of our, you know, industry from and where more jobs are created and trickle down from there. So, um, but a lot of those dollars that come into the state are funneled away from the state um, and or off island to you know foreign governments that own the hotel or mainland corporations and it doesn't really benefit the people of Maui. So my thought is is what we do is we actually give developers a special dispensation so long as they meet a particular price criteria. So let's just say hey two bedroom uh, duplex you know house uh, or three bedroom duplex house that should sell for, you know, 350,000, 250,000, you know, right now, if something tried to sell for 250,000, they'd be losing, you know, probably 150,000 in their building costs. But if they had a special license that gave them the ability to do vacation rentals there for like three to five years or something like that, then they're going to be making a ton of money. That money is going to go back into the developer as well as the people who are building the project. And then instead of vacation rentals tearing communities apart where people are doing vacation rentals, it's actually vacation rentals building Maui's communities. So it actually flips it on its head. And instead of having, you know, tourists coming and pulling housing away from the people who live here, it's actually quite literally housing that's only meant for the people who live and work on island. So I've always wanted to make it you know, incentivizing because that equity is going to get built into the person that purchased it and build a future for tomorrow. So, you know, that time envelope, let's say 10, 20 years down the road, when they're getting closer to retirement, then they're going to actually have that capital to be able to, you know, pull equity from their home, you know, actually live off of that. And, and it's the only way I think that developers are going to be like, okay, yeah, okay, I can do this. And I can make more money as opposed to, you know, losing money. That's, that's the whole thing. It's like, why would they want to do something that's, you know, a gonna cost them time and money and, and at the end of the day, make them go broke. So <laughs> I, there should be some sort of model out there. Oh, yeah. my, my belief is to uh, pull out all the stops and you know, we have to attack this crisis with a multi-pronged approach. There's no one solution. It, it's going to take a lot of uh, different type of mechanisms to address the crisis in, in itself. And uh, I mean, I'm trying to be optimistic. I, I don't know how, how far we'll get, but we just got to keep attacking it and because otherwise it's just going to get further and further out of control. And, you know, soon, you know, it, Maui or Maui County could, will be just a, a land for the rich, you know? And yeah. No, that was one of the where things that's go? crazy too, with the gentrification that happens in some of these neighborhoods, you know, there's no inventory anywhere. So it's like, you know, people who would rather purchase in Wailea, you know, they would be purchasing something for, you know, 2 million or whatnot in a gated community. They can't even find anything like that. 
um, or it needs just a complete gut job where they're going to pour 800,000 to a million dollars into it. They're like, well, I can go buy something in Maui Meadows, you know, and a Maui Meadows house that would normally sell for like a million dollars is now going for two, two and a half million. And, you know, even the neighborhood that's right next over outside the houses that were, you know, averaging 760 to, you know, at the most 900,000 are now selling for, you know, 1.3 million. And it's complete, it's basically, you know, the lack of inventory and, you know, nice product is basically pulling affordable housing away from everything. So it's, it's not just that we need to build affordable housing. You know, it's the fact that we just simply need to build housing that's going to like benefit the community to the maximum. And, you know, I, I think the biggest, most dire location that they need housing right now is not just upcountry or Kihei where, you know, we are, I see it over on the West side because it's like the tourism Mecca, but all that to, like housing over there is mostly second homes, you know, especially you get into some of these neighborhoods and whether it's, you know, legal or le illegal vacation rentals, um, it's, there's just not enough of it. Even with the, all of them, even if every single one was a Maui family that's in there and a primary residence, so many people have to come into town off of that road causing traffic issues. So again, uh, I love what Carr, Stanford Carr did over in that area with the development. And it's nice to see it go up, but I've even already seen one of the houses that got built is on the market right now for 1.2 million. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's like, how are you going to even, you need to have more houses get built. And the only way to do that, I think, is to increase the profit index of, you know, the developer that lives here. And that money goes into the people that live on island. So I like it. <laughs> one, one thing we missed in the beginning is, Mike, tell us um, what area you represent, um, you know, what committees you're on, you know, a little bit about yourself. I think we yeah. skipped that in the beginning. I'd love to hear that. Sure. Okay. I'll, I'll, I represent the uh, Mako Haiku Paya district, but the way our, our, our system is set up, even though I, I, I represent a seat or a particular district, I'm accountable to everybody because uh, our election is an at-large election. So someone who lives in Molokai can contact me uh, if they have an issue. And, you know, so we're, we're, even though I, I come from this district, I'm responsible uh, to everyone. And my committee is called the Governance, uh, Governance Review Ethics and Transparency Committee. Basically, we deal with legal matters and uh, boards and commission nominations and anything else that doesn't fit into other committees, it comes to mind. So I'm sort of the catch-all committee. So we have a lot of very interesting meetings, to say the least, uh, which range from the injection well issues to um, uh court matters and nominations for boards and commissions. So it's, it's pretty exciting committee and we have long meetings, but I, I try to keep it within that three hour mark. But uh, as uh, your wife, Ray, uh, Raina will probably tell you, yeah, we, we got a lot of stuff going on there, but I'm, I'm happy to chair it. And it's, it's good to have, uh, you know, eight other colleagues that are willing to put in the time. And that's a wonder, wonderful thing about the council. You have nine different individuals with um, different goals and objectives, but the one uh, thing or thread that everyone has is we wanna do what's best, uh, what we believe for, for Maui County. Now, COVID, how, how has COVID affect, you know, you guys legislatively, you know, have you guys slowed down or what, what have you guys done that differently during this time? 
Well, you know, it's funny. I think with COVID, we've actually worked harder because now that we're working from home, um, not having to travel to and from work, that saves saves you a lot of time. So um, I know for some members, uh, some of us, it makes us think of, gee, what else can I do to help my community? So with me, I love to uh, go net surfing and seeing what other communities are doing and uh, seeing if this legislation will work here in Maui County, like the two pieces of uh, legislation that I, I spoke of earlier, the affordable housing from and the first time home buyers fund. I got the inspiration uh, to do those pieces of legislation from, I believe in Ventura County, California. This was, you know, years ago. So I'm, I'm always open to trying different things. Uh, the plastic bag uh, legislation, um, I initiated that back in the um, 2005, 2006, and that was from the Bay Area. So for some reason, I like to look at legislation out in California and then see if it works here in, in Maui County. But yeah, I think we're actually working harder. And this particular group of uh, my, my fellow colleagues, very uh, committed and very into it. So it's, it's, it's been fun, a lot of long days and nights, but, but you know, we're all trying to do our best for the people of Maui County. In this session, like this legislative session, what are your guys like priorities? What, what, what are some of the top priorities you guys are working on? Oh, definitely uh, the, the housing issue for sure. That, that's, that's number one. Um, also, we uh, looked at creating the Department of Agriculture and also a, a, a commission for, the, uh, for homeless solutions. Of course, the homeless issue is a big thing right now and food sustainability. So which is one reason why I believe Councilmember Sinensi initiated that uh, charter amendment to create a separate Department of Agriculture because you know, we're out here in the, in the Pacific and with the pandemic, it just um, reinforced that concern about, you know, transportation gets cut off and what are we gonna do for food? So you have a lot of young people who wanna get into agriculture. Plus we've also lost big agriculture, right? Sugarcane and pineapple. So that, and also um, economic diversification, maybe less reliance on tourism. I like um, that. Yeah, yeah. My, myself personally, I'd like to see Maui County become a, a center of education, if you will. Um, partnering up with a major university where uh, we can have our, our young people do education here and get a, a degree or, or, or do a program from say like a, a well-known institution like a University of Southern California, just to throw out a name or Stanford, what have you. And also a place where we, we, we can train young medical health care professionals. Uh, we have a population that's living longer and you know we have a shortage of doctors and we could always use more physical therapists, radiologists, et cetera. So I'd like to see Maui diversify into that area, partnering up with um, healthcare uh, organizations and working with the University of Hawaii and, and other educational institutions. So that way we're, we're, we're relying less on tourism. I mean, tourism will still be a big part of our economy, but that way we don't put all our eggs in one basket with regards to our economy because you put all eggs in one basket and then something happens like a pandemic, well, we, we see the effects. Yeah, absolutely. Diversified economy is so essential for the longevity and health of the community. And I think you're right on it. And the two are probably most feasible ones, of course, you know, the tech industry. So I think it does make a lot of sense to partner with some of these more tech savvy schools. But it's kind of funny with the work from everywhere, anywhere movement, it's kind of exacerbated some of our, you know, issues that we deal with. We definitely need to work towards making sure that these people are here, you know, are paying local income taxes if they're living here full time, you know, so instead they're having their job over in Oregon or whatnot, and they're not paying at all. And at the same time, impact impacting our local infrastructure system. So that's kind of an important aspect. But for the people who live and work here, 
there's so many opportunities that they don't realize it's out there for them just to take a class and, and get certified in a particular area of either programming or whatnot. And then of course the other one, which is actually doing incredibly well since we've come out of COVID is the movie industry. You know, um, and having more kids go out there and learn how to use a camera and creating unique um, uh, movies on their own really gets them into the industry. So having financing available for that, as well as education, um, I, I think that that's one of the things that the tech park needs to move to is because uh, while we have uh, a, a serious um, lack of, of uh, renters in there. I mean, I think the vacancy is like 50, 60% or something like that in some of the buildings. What the industry needs is really studios. Like they need to actually build, you know, big areas. Unfortunately, studio sizes are getting smaller and smaller with some of the digital aspects. They'll put screens on the wall and whatnot. But that's something that I'm, I'm trying to work on getting on the board over there so that I can, you know, help push these ideas forward, diversify the economy. Um, they do wonderful work right now, reaching out to the kids and uh, doing education in the tech avenue and getting kids interested. But I think that there needs to be, you know, more facility already, because when you have an industry somewhere that breeds opportunity to talk to somebody who knows it, who's actually making money in that industry, a lot of people who are in the tech industry, you know, often end up, you know, mo moving temporarily or permanently off island, which, you know, then... That, that comes to that issue of getting back here with affordable lack of rentals and things of that nature. So even creating like a live work campus situation for temporary workers and projects would be a really good idea as opposed to leaving all that vacant space up there. Um, and uh, I'm really stoked with uh, Maui Brewing, the fact that we have actual manufacturing on this island. It's just, I'm so happy about that. And Garrett does just a phenomenal job and, you know, riding through this whole pandemic with the issues that he's had to go through. And it's good to see that, it, you know, such a massive powerhouse is surviving on this island. Yeah. And um, I, I was actually trying that's to That's a great example of a, of a product that, you know, we, we can export, you know, yeah. a brand yeah. new product people come here for. And that's a, a direction we should also look at as, as far as what we can do to export food as well, you know, yeah. we'll help build our, our food industry, agriculture industry and what have you. But, uh, but, you know, looking at economic diversification, it's a wonderful, wonderful thought, but at the same time, it still centers around housing. I mean, we can develop all these yeah. wonderful industries and young professionals, but if they cannot afford get a, get a wage that can, you know, acquire attainable housing, then they're going to take all their talents and take it to the mainland or wherever they can survive. And so yeah. that's, that's why we just really have to put our focus on attainable housing at this point, so we can keep these young professionals here. So yeah, we don't have, suffer from the brain drain. <laughs> Has that's there has there been talk, you know, when I look at the affordable housing, I remember, you know, you look at Kahalui, that was a county project. You know what I mean? A county run project. Has, has that ever been talked about again, like the county stepping in, you know? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Byron. I mean, I've been asking the mayor and the administration, let's look at our inventory of county owned lands where, you know, wherever it's an appropriate site to build, we can RFP out or, you know, contract out to a developer to build because the highest cost for a our subdivision is the land itself mm -hmm. so if we can you know we, the county owns the land develop county housing on it that's a direction we where that is you know where government needs to intervene uh, i have always been someone who's tried to you know uh that lazy fair if you remember that old economics term let let, let let private business be with the minimal government interference 
but I think we're in a crisis where government has to really step up big to, to help, you know, um, reduce this crisis. So let's find our existing county lands and build on that. And I think the demand is more a lot for rentals as well, too. And then at some point with, with uh, homeowners education, then people can eventually step up and uh, acquire homes for home ownership. But, but yeah, um, that's where the county needs to step up. Let's look at our inventory of county lands and then develop off of that. So that'll, that'll save the developers some costs. So if they don't have to acquire the lands themselves, then you know, build it on a county property yeah, and make it affordable I, in perpetuity for 30 plus years. Yeah, yeah, because as I look at, like to me, I mean, there again, I was, I'm from Oahu, but looking at the, to me, the most successful one on Maui, it seems like the Kahalu, you know, the phase one, phase two, increment one or whatever, which was, I believe the county assisted or however, it just seems like that was the most, the biggest one, you know what I mean? That helped, helped Kahalui that I think the county, and I'm glad you're going that way, you know, has to maybe participate or, you know, get involved potentially to get this ball rolling. Because what are we, what are we missing? Or do we need about 16,000 new affordables? What, what are you guys seeing? So yeah, no, the shortfall right now is over. It, I see numbers that range from 8,000 to 16,000, but really most numbers popping around 10,000 homes that are needed. And the big thing is, you know, it's important that we put this housing where the people are and, you know, where they're going to work. So like, that's why I want to push more affordable housing over on the West side, because everybody's making the commute out there. So if you go ahead and you create affordable, and I'm not just talking like, you know, something that's barely affordable, you know, because most of the things that are selling are, you know, 550, 700, you know, $50,000, like real affordable properties that should only be sold to people who live and work in that area so that they can stop being on the roads so that they don't have to travel from Kahului out there. You know, it, it needs to be dynamic enough to consider our current constraint and, and infrastructure issues. And of course, that's one of the things I, you know, the reason I like the idea of having rentals pay for housing because that way your infrastructure that you're creating to make that housing function, you know, basically also is the infrastructure for the vacation runners that are coming here. And then once they leave, that same infrastructure structure is for the people who live here in that same spot. So I think, you know, I, I think the best system that I've seen, of course, thus far is um, it, it, that I've surprised it didn't work is the fast track process. You know, so many of these things get submitted through fast track and they're like, okay, yeah, we'll go through this and get this done. And then they get to the last, you know, hurdle and the prices that they're talking about on the fast track are, are barely affordable. So, uh, and that in, in included with NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard, they say, no, I don't want to have this development in my neighborhood. And it's like, I don't, I seen Lani Apoko and I've sold a lot of places in Lani Apoko. Every time I show a place, I'm like, Okay, you see that vacant land all the way on the, the <laughs> you know, by the highway there? It's all agricultural land, but they're going to likely make that affordable housing one day. And then I see like the affordable housing, you know, committee come through and they're like, okay, we're going to make this affordable. And everyone's like, no, I don't want a bunch of houses. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> what do you think, Mike? <laughs> I, I totally agree. That's one of the major challenges. You know, you have a lot of folks saying, yeah, we need more affordable housing, but don't put it in my backyard. So that's, that's one of the hurdles you got to deal with. Uh, and it's funny. So sometimes the people that complain uh, were where, where, you know, they might be, these folks are not longtime residents. So they, it's right. sort of like, okay, I got mine now. I don't want anybody else to have theirs. So, 
uh, you know, I think we just have to be more tolerant of each other. Like, um, you know, I was born and raised here and I've seen the changes of Maui throughout the years. And, and I guess back in the day, um, maybe it was a more simpler time. So there seemed to be more tolerance of, yeah, okay, everybody builds a house or subdivision, fine, no problem. But I guess as time progressed, as more and more people came here and part of the problem too, from years ago, I think Maui was not really planned right. There's a lack of yeah. infrastructure. It was all about that. Let's just put up the houses first and worry about the road system later. So I think that's part of the problem. And that's why planning, planning is such a critical process now. So it seems like the planning was, it was sort of like backwards, you know, put the house, worry about the infrastructure later, but then you get more problems planning that way. So that's why, you know, those are, again, some of the challenges we've had to deal with and, and redirect how we plan, our, plan for our, our communities. And of That's course, and, and, and there's some forces that you can't control, supply and demand, the market itself. So all those challenges make it a real difficult nut to crack, but you just got to keep hacking away. Now you touched on the injection well earlier, Mike. What What is that about? So I've heard about it. I just don't understand it. Tell me a little bit. Well, um, historically from, actually it started with the movement really started happening from the late eighties, early nineties, when all of this uh, runoff uh, water from the, our wastewater system in Lahaina, it was, it was being treated. Uh, and then it goes into the ocean and apparently it was having an effect on the reefs. And for a while, you know, only the, uh, a, a few folks were complaining about it. And then as time progressed and more research was done, it was shown that the, uh, the, the treated water was having an effect on the limo growth on the reefs and the life of, of the coral and so forth. So just recently, I guess there was a lawsuit um, from, I guess, Earth Justice and other environmental organizations against the county to stop these injection wells and instead uh, use this water that was being injected in, into the wells and into the ocean, use it for other purposes, um, you know, for irrigating fields and so forth. But you need to build the infrastructure but I guess the uh, county lost uh, in the Supreme Court recently where the judges you know, sided with the environmentalists. So uh, now the county is now uh, moving towards uh, developing infrastructure that you could use this water that was formerly injected into the wells and use it now for uh, other purposes, uh, for uh, irrigating fields and, or for irrigating golf courses and so forth. So still make use of that water instead of uh, pumping it into the ocean. Yeah, food products are a really tough one when it comes to irrigating. I mean, it's, it would be fine, but um, one of the issues with a lot of the stuff that we're having and we're seeing in our oceans. So deep water well injections is actually fantastic in most places across the United States. But the problem is, is we have very porous soil here and we're surrounded by ocean and we have a very limited water table that we can work with. So what they do is they drill a hole and then they pump after they, you know, filtered out the, the main bad stuff deep in the ground. And the idea is what it leaches through and then collects into the soils that are right around there. But we don't have really any clay here. It's almost all volcanic. So what happens is, you know, over time, you know, volatile organic compounds and nitrogens go through the, the soils and then get into the ocean, which screws up the ecology of the ocean. And of course, the groundwater that we drink right there. So the idea, of course, putting it on the surface of the, uh, the area and get a lot of our dry, arid lands to actually grow and, you know, create crops is great. But the, again, the problem is, is most times there's lots of issues that using, you know, um, sewage as a means of irrigation is really frowned upon, uh, unless it's more ornamental in nature. 
So you can, you have to a create an ornamental system, you know, a separate set of pipes to go specifically just for some garden area or whatnot. Um, I mean, I love the idea. I think what they should do, at least with the Kihei one, is uh, create a corridor from you know Kihei all the way up country. Because I mean, I've I've volunteered my time, you know, reestablishing Native Hawaiian forests, you know, over uh, past um, the the winery area. There's like this big, beautiful acreage that they set aside, and what they've done there is amazing. But with this whole corridor that goes up to Haleakala, you know, that used to be old growth, you know, koa and sandalwood. But when the sandalwood trade came and ripped everything out, it completely destroyed the uh, water um, shed so that the, when clouds come over, it causes rains. So if you spent the time using that water afterwards to basically reestablish Native Hawaiian forests and ohia trees and stuff like that, it would, it would be a good use of the water. And I don't know where the funding would come from, though, because that is crazy expensive. It's crazy expensive to pump water up a hill. And you know, electricity costs and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Mike, I, I, I was I was reading your uh, your website, MikeMolinaMaui.com, the other day, and I was looking at the school zone protection bill. Is that a bill that you helped with? Is it a current bill? What's happening with that? Yeah, that was a bill that I I, I introduced years ago. On my first. Um, in, in increasing the fines so you're driving near schools because you know because we had several pedestrian uh, students mm -hmm. and a, a motorist accident so that would make it uh, a, a harsher penalty so and i think it was also about extending the hours to to six o'clock i think back in the day before I, I i did the legislation to amend it i think it was maybe only up until like three o'clock I, I believe uh trying to just think back <laughs> that we, we extended it to six o'clock because you have a lot of kids that sometimes stay at school doing activities and so forth. But that had that, of course, has changed a little bit with the pandemic. But prior to the pandemic, you had, you know, kids staying at school longer hours to do, you know, uh, sports activities and so forth. So that's one reason why I chose to uh, introduce legislation to extend the hours that you can only drive whatever 15, 20 miles an hour in a school zone. So it's a, it was a safety deal. And I didn't realize you were a teacher at one time, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because back at Kalama School, um, I taught social studies. Uh, I love uh, civic engagement. And I encouraged my kids to do a project um, where they had to do a letter writing campaign. And I asked the kids, okay, so what do you think this school needs? And one of the kids said, Mr. Molina, how about maybe a recycling center? So I thought, Okay, that's an interesting idea. And we had land next to, to Kalama School in Makawao, and state land. So I said, okay, let's go ahead and write letters to the governor, write letters to the mayor, have your parents write letters to the newspapers, you guys yourselves write letters. So I thought, okay, great exercise. But at the time, honestly, I thought, you know, nothing's going to happen, right? Who's going to listen to the kids, right? Lo and behold, I got the sh uh, a shock. We got a letter back from former Governor Cayetano and former Mayor Linda Lingle, who loved the idea. And right. next thing you know, I get a letter from the mayor again, and she assigns her environmental coordinator to go out there and let's let's do the research and let's uh, establish a recycling center. And it happened. And it was right. a great example for the kids to see that, hey, government can work. You do have a voice. So 
Uh, this was back in the late 1990s. And it was a real win-win because at the time, um, a lot of the metals that were being brought in, uh, I guess a local um, metal company had been paying uh, money to the school to collect. So those monies were put into the student government coffers and everything else. But it was just the, the idea and the, uh, I guess the excitement that the kids had. I, I, I couldn't believe their looks. And I was shocked myself. Look at this. Look at what you guys did. And all I did was I just steered the canoe, but they did the work and their parents. And that's a real, that's a, an achievement I'm, I'm really proud of, especially for the kids and for the community, what it did. Well, that's one of the things too. Oh, sorry, Kevin. No, that's one of the things too, is that, you know, us as community members, you know, we feel like our voice isn't heard, you know, or what do we do to get our, like, you know, we don't want to constantly call you, you know, what, what can we do as a community, individuals, like when we have ideas, what do you recommend, like, so, you know, our voice is heard? Well, you know, with the advent of uh, email and social media, um, you have more ways you can communicate with your elected officials. Um, I, I, for me, I find emails work, uh, sometimes phone calls, you know, Sometimes we, we're, we're inundated with so much other stuff we might forget, but I, I, I've been really blessed to have a good staff who does great at following up on phone calls and so forth. Because you have some people that are still, you know, old school, things like the phone call, or they'll just stop in a shopping center and expect you to remember everything. We don't have any notepad. So I, I try my best to, you know, get the person's contact information. But by all means, you know, I, I've always believed in all the elected officials should be accessible to the public. Return all the phone calls, the emails, faxes, what have you. Um, and realistically, I, I think most people know uh, we can't solve all problems, but if you're there to at least listen, people appreciate that, or at least try to find the people that can address their concerns. So I, I see myself as sort of a conduit between the constituent and the administration, and also maybe even with state or, or federal issues. Um, my philosophy has always been help where you can, you know. Uh, we've had recently complaints about um, airline flights over the Haiku area. So obviously that's a federal matter, but we got in contact with Congressman Kahele. So he's been helping us uh, try to address that issue, maybe helping redirect the flight paths of those air airplanes. And he himself was a former pilot. I think, well, I think he is currently a pilot on the side for Hawaiian Airlines. So he certainly has a lot of extensive knowledge about flight paths and so forth. So. That's one way I try to solve problems, find someone who can, you know, who's really knowledgeable in that area, do our best to do that. So that's what I think, you know, all elected officials should always look at I it as like a customer service thing. You know? I love blue jeans. It's been the most impactful thing that has allowed yeah. me to attend many more county meetings and actually be a part of the discussion because they never run on time ever, you know, they're always yeah. like a couple hours late. You try to get there to get in line to like give your two cents or, you know, and, you know, not just send an email because then you get part of the discussion and see what other people are thinking. And so blue jeans to me is like something that should never, ever be gotten rid of because it has really allowed a lot more civic engagement. Yeah. And, I'm glad you brought that up because I think the governor, it's going to become law, I think, in January where you can do remote government like this. Because I love it. Yeah, it, it's neat. And, you know, for uh, although some people say there's nothing like the feel of being back in the chambers and seeing people face to face. But on the other hand, this makes government more accessible to a lot of people. So you can be on the mainland and be participating in a, in a, in a local county meeting as well. So that, that's the beauty of it. What is, what is, Mike, what is Blue Jean? And because I don't know about it, Clint keeps bringing it up. I haven't really paid attention. And what, how do we get, how do I like, like get Zoom. access to Blue Jean? Yeah. Mike? Yeah, it, it's a competitor of Zoom. Like Clint said, it's, it's an app. You just click on it and then, uh, 
but for example, our county meetings for blue jeans, there's a code you have to enter. Um, you can do it either by phone or just you want to do it with video and audio. So uh, yeah, so that's basically, I, I'm not the most tech savvy person. Maybe Clint can go, get into the more technical details of it. But you know, when we first started it, a lot of us had a hard time like, getting used to it. Like I'm a perfect example of that. But the younger members, like say Keanu Rollins Fernandez, she's from that very tech savvy generation. So she helped educate the old, old ones like me into uh, getting comfortable with blue jeans. So now I love it. The only drawback is I've gained more weight. That's the one problem, you know. Other than that, it's been great. You're like, from here down is a disaster. I'm glad we're just keeping the camera oh, yeah. up. And you know, you, you buy all these, you know, prior to the pandemic, I brought all this, all this new clothes to wear to the meetings. Now I think I got a bunch of new pants just sitting in there in the closet. And so I just use the shirts and otherwise I'm very casual. You can't see. You. <laughs> It's like I'm going to the beach, you know. I love know? it. I love it. That's an important part of uh, of being, you know, civically engaged. I, I hope that they keep it. That's for sure. But it just to your answer, Byron, it is pretty much a lot like Zoom, except there's a couple of more little dynamic features about, you know, group chat, you know, specific chat to the representative that you want to mm -hmm. talk to. So it allows for, you know, uh, a couple of discussions to be going on. The more specific you know, discussion that's right on the board where everybody's talking out loud, giving their testimony and then asking cross-examination questions. Fabulous, generally just exactly like Zoom. And then the other portion, which is where people are actually, you know, this is my place in line. They ask, you know, maybe some questions or have a little bit of a conversation mm -hmm. between different members or testifiers to learn information. Um, really helps people understand because there's so much, you know, false impression and understanding of things that go on it helps a clear it up in the section because people will tell what they know or at least it'll be like brought to the surface and then that can be again addressed in the testimony it's funny i'll see what happens many times in the blue jeans is you'll get several people under a belief of some particular system or whatnot that you know or a proposal for land use that gets in there and then a couple of people are discussing things um then a testimony happens, it clears up that everybody's belief was not, you know, really what they thought was going on with either the project or an initiative. And then you'll see like a bunch of people drop out. And then, mm -hmm. you know, then people with their specific viewpoint go in. Um, and uh, yeah, it's great. I think it's one of the most important tools and, and helps for a civic dialogue, you know, a lot of time people get really heated at these meetings. Yeah, yeah. You, you, I appreciate that point, Clint, because yeah. yeah, it kind of removes that uh, a little bit of that human factor for better or for worse. Because when you're in a live chamber, sometimes people will be intimidated about the, the you know, going up to testify because they'll see people in the audience smirking or giving them threatening looks. Whereas in the Blue Jeans app, you're just alone, you know, talking to the council members. I mean, everybody else is listening in. And if you have any uh, testifier that comes on and tries to be unruly, you can mute them or remove them from the, the meeting, uh, the virtual meeting. So there's some advantages to it. So a lot of people are much more comfortable. They feel less intimidated having to, instead of having to go into a live chamber in front of, you know, 150 to 100 people looking at them and especially on very uh, sensitive topics. So it has created a different uh, aura, if you will. And maybe, um, and even as the committee chair, it gives you a lot more, control over the meeting. So like I said, if someone gets very unruly or rude, you warn them, they keep it up, you mute them and remove, remove them, lock them out of the meeting. Yep. 
Exactly. Instead of having to call the police or security <laughs> or what have you, you know, it makes the civic dialogue a lot easier. And then as the pandemic clears up, you know, physically showing up is still going to, you know, probably have to be an option. I, I actually think this is better for our system altogether because it's shown thus far that people are actually more productive being able to work from home as opposed to having to go into a physical location. And I think the best benefit is not having as many people on the roads because, you know, traffic is, in my opinion, one of the biggest issues that need to be overcome with any community and um, you know li living in makwa and having to travel to iluka i've saved a lot of gas now doing this uh you yeah, know virtual but i think we may eventually go back um probably before the end of the year or early part of the year to have some meetings in the chambers that's what i've, I've been told so don't be surprised if we have some future meetings in the chambers again. So. Oh yeah, I, I think it's it's a time will never pass. You know, it's yeah. that face to face is really important too. Well, maybe we can balance it both. Have some meetings do it virtual and other meetings in the chambers. So maybe yep. just have the council meetings in the chamber. Committee meetings we can do it at home. Yeah. Like the, the, your current term, the current term on the county council is what through twenty twenty two. Correct. Uh, this term will end December thirty first, twenty twenty two. Every every two years. So the, the election cycle is going to start next year. What is it? Start later in the year or next uh, year? Sorry. Uh, I, it used to be starting every February was the, uh, you can start to file for office. The state moved it back to uh, March now. So have you yeah. heard about uh, rank choice voting? No. What? So rank it's really choice. interesting. I, I, they're actually, it's, it's common practice in Ireland, like that basically they have a multi-party system. So right now the US of course is on a dual party system, which doesn't lead for a lot of diversity in thought. And you know, many times people are getting um, polarized to one particular area, even though they ha may have some key features in one that they like. So what ranked choice voting allows is, you know, for people to be like, okay, this is my number one choice, you know, and then this is my number two choice. And then this is my number three choice. So until, you know, a, a particular percentage, I think it's like 60% or something like that until 60% can agree, you know, it basically value weights that. So let's just say you have 10 people running, you know, for one position, you know, they can basically go and be like, this is my number one choice. This is my number two choice. And this is my number three. And then if almost everybody agrees that number two is like the best option, or number three, that person will be the elected official for that particular district. And um, there's, of course, a lot more nuance to it. And it, uh, to me, makes it, uh, A, a lot more interesting to watch the political process. And, it, and to me, it, it's really important because one of the big things that's happening in politics, of course, is uh, there's just the massive polarization. You know, people are so way too hardcore on a particular position as opposed to being more in the middle and flexible, which you know creates a lot of this friction that we're seeing in our society. And what this allows is for those um, that have more nuance in their beliefs and systems to actually get heard and, and people are not uh, afraid of voting for somebody that they believe in more as opposed to the person that's their party leader. And they're like, I gotta vote for my guy because he's gonna make sure that my particular area is gonna be considered as opposed to somebody who's like, yeah, I believe that. And this is a part of that to, you know, they're gonna be the diehard. They're gonna go for like the black and white person as opposed to the person with nuance, nine out of 10, because of the more confrontational political system that we find ourselves in these days with the dual party. So it still can live in a dual party system. You can identify, but the important thing is that, you know, when it comes to the voting process, 
those can that are you know less diehard get their voice heard and you know people aren't afraid to put a vote towards them even though it might not be their number one vote and it gives a great opportunity for a more diverse set of thought in the political process so if you ever see anything on ranked choice voting i mean i'm i'm just a huge fan of it yeah so, so like a weighted system so to speak yeah 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 precisely <laughs> What do you? What is your plan like for the last remaining part of this uh, this cycle? What, what what kind of bills or what kind of ideas or what what is your push? Well, I'm um, still exploring uh, other avenues to create more affordable housing. Um, one thing that I was really pushing for was to separate our, or create a separate housing division in the county because uh, right now our Department of Housing and Human Concerns has grown so big. Mm -hmm. And it's hard uh, for the department just to focus only on housing because with the other human concern needs, for example, dealing with the homeless situation, it's become so big. So uh, I had proposed a charter amendment uh, to see if the public would be uh, supportive of creating a separate department of housing. Unfortunately, I didn't get the six votes on the council level to put it on the ballot. I'm hoping that's uh, something the charter commission can consider because that department has just gotten so big. Yeah. Um, one, one example I can point to is our public works department. For many years, environmental management was part of public works, but it just got so big. Uh, there was a charter amendment to separate uh, environmental management and create their own department. And mm -hmm. the electorate passed it. And I think it's, it's working fine because if we're to keep environmental management under the same authority under, with public works, it just become too big and too, too complex. Yeah, so, I think that's a great idea, separating the two, because like you said, everything is so big right now, that, and, and, and it's a huge need. The homeless is huge and other necessary things, but I think the affordable or the housing is just as important. Create a separate focus on those two specific areas, affordable housing and addressing a shelter for our homeless. How does that work? If I, for example, wanted to introduce a bill with a more transit-oriented uh, transit model, for growth and development? Like, how would I go about that process to introduce a bill? Well, uh, you can uh, select a council member to be uh, your champion, or, or again, you can initiate it as a citizen. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, you'd have to have a council member to introduce it, or you mm -hmm. could approach the administration, but most people tend to go towards a council member to introduce it on their behalf. And then it goes through a committee hearing. And then if it passes committee, then it goes to council for a, a full vote. And that's basically how a bill a local, on, a, on a local level gets uh, gets. And of course, writing it up, coming up with the, the yeah. process. Do you have people that you recommend for writing bills or anything like that? Well, well again, you can work with a council member and, and we yeah. have staff that, that specialize in, in drafting legislation or uh, you can out, out in the private sector, some folks that are, you know, that can do it out in the private sector, bring it to, to the county level. And then, of course, our county attorneys have to look at it to make sure that it's a uh, there's no loopholes or any uh, oh, legal yeah. uh, potential legal entanglements that could happen if a bill like that is passed. And sometimes the uh, county attorneys will not sign off on a bill specifically for the, those reasons. But councils in the past have tried have passed legislation without uh, the county attorneys signing off. But it's generally something that uh, you don't see yeah, happen very often. But you, yeah. you definitely would like to have the, your county attorneys sign off on it too. Be safe. It's always nice to CYA and make sure that everything's, you know, every I is dotted and every T is yeah, crossed. That's right. CYA is everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that being said, with the uh, election coming up in 2022, it's like right around the corner. 
Um, and of course, the just great dynamic change coming into Hawaii with, you know, A, people leaving, B, coming in. And, you know, I've always seen the cost of living being the number one problem. And, I'm, and we've discussed that about housing and whatnot. But and earlier, we were, of course, talking about diversifying our economy. And you mentioned some of the ag work. Um, I was talking again to Garrett um, about, you know, I, I oftentimes will not drink for a couple of months at a time just for health reasons. I want to make sure I'm working out and alcohol doesn't help muscle development as well. So I go off of alcohol just so I can get more into shape and, and focus on things of that nature. And um, CBD is great. It's a wonderful thing. And I actually in the mainland tried a CBD beer. And I was like, oh, non-alcoholic CBD beer. That's awesome. And uh, I asked him, he's like, yeah, it's really hard. And since we can't grow it here, I really want to work with more Maui products. I am toying around with a couple of things, but, you know, without, with the way that the ag laws are right now, they can't grow or have a manufacturing facility here in order to separate, you know, the THC and CBD from each other. So when is, you know, marijuana going to be able to be grown on island in a, in a serious, you know, recreational Avenue. I mean, they always constantly talk about waiting for the federal change, which is about to happen. So <laughs> is that it? We're just waiting for the feds to be okay with it since we're on an island? You know, unfortunately, sometimes waiting for the feds to make a decision can be like forever. But I, I think it's going to happen definitely sooner than much later. I mean, the movement's happening across the country and other places. And, you know, I guess people's uh, mindset on marijuana, uh, especially the younger generations, it's changed and it's not viewed as so much as a, a detriment or to yeah. society. I mean, if, if used right appropriately and not abused, you know, it's something that can work. And, and there's, you know, there's a lot of potential for money in there. Oh, and yeah. my, my youngest daughter, for example, she lives in Colorado and I think Colorado has legalized it and everything. And she's told me, you know, from what she's seen, there's been not, nothing detrimental about it, at least from her standpoint. Now, I've heard some uh, with, with uh, law enforcement, they've had some a little bit of concerns about having it legalized in terms of like dealing with people with impaired driving. Yeah, but there's no real way to test for people. Yeah. You know, there is some that they've been under development right now, but not major adoption from the police officers. So um, and Colorado is a really great example where um, they have actually seen uh, quite a few things happen when they've legalized, you know, marijuana. Uh, a, of course, there's the economic boom that associated with a new product being available and people, you know, migrating to it. So there's more tax taxes available to the state to do whatever it be. You know, um, to me, I think most of the, the funds should be uh, put aside for, you know, homeless mental health and substance abuse, specifically substance abuse, because that's the, the area. But of course, alcohol is the number one abuse oh, yeah. Yeah. Item that's out there. So it shouldn't be limited to whatever drug. Um, and when uh, that ends up happening, the funny thing is the biggest concern with marijuana is, of course, youth smoking marijuana. It causes developmental delay. That's like one of, once you're in your you know, mid-20s and you're past that major growth spurt of your life, there's really not a lot of major long-term health impacts associated with it. So, but the problem is, is when people and young children are smoking marijuana at a young age is, is it causes the brain to lock into that kind of that in, in, incapable of understanding larger, bigger picture ideas and the brain can't develop the way that it normally would. So, you know, marijuana is really not that bad until it's like a youth. When it gets legalized, it's actually harder for the kid 
to get a hold of it because they have they can't nowadays marijuana you know it's just as popular as it will be whether or not it's legal and then but you don't have really licensed and registered people that can lose that if they go ahead and they start selling it so they'll sell it illegally to whoever oh you're 13 14 whatever no big deal and that kid ends up on a cycle you know they get in start smoking marijuana and it develops you know, A, of course, just like anything can be a gateway to other stuff, but more importantly, causes those brain defects um, and um, defaults in, until they, you know, basically forever. So I, I think leaving the funding aside that helps education and more importantly, helps keep kids away from, you know, the abuse of such a, a substance. I, I think it's really great. And it's, it's Colorado, I actually invest really heavily in CVDD, which is a, a Colorado-based company, and uh, they're phenomenal. They're actually a, a multinational company. They actually have uh, places in Switzerland, and um, they're, the great thing about it is I have no problem putting more money into it because it's like a nine-cent stock, and it's trading at like one and a half cents, so I just, every time I have spare cash, I like put it in there, and I'm, I'm really stoked, especially once that federal legalization happens, it's going to, you know, really send it through the roof and, and a good opportunity out there. <laughs> yep. Education is the key to everything and uh, use in moderation. I mean, I mean, look at the damage alcohol has caused over, oh, over the past yeah. since prohibition was lifted. So, you know, I guess it's become a weaker argument to uh, to demonize or, or prohibit marijuana because, you know, yeah. I mean, how much more worse could marijuana be than than what alcohol has done to our yeah, society? Yeah, of course it's bad, but it's like, how bad is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just make sure it, it stays in the right hands. And like you mentioned, a good point, if you legalize it, then then a person who's selling it, are they going to risk losing their license by selling it to an underage person, you know? so. And then it's not profitable for the people who are, you know, basically doing, you know, you're going to risk your livelihood in order to sell it illegally as opposed to you know going and making it you know just oh go and get your license work at one of these facilities if that's what you're passionate about but it also lowers the overall cost and it doesn't make sense to sell it anymore because the cost is so low you're not making any profit as an illegal seller so i i think it definitely makes sense to legalize it and but that does bring us to the end of our show. We've had a, a nice long hour discussion this evening. I want to thank Michael, Mike Molina so much for coming and joining us. And, and oh, my pleasure. Thank you. It's, that hour just flew by fast. <laughs> my <laughs> pleasure. Fun. Easy. How can they follow you, Mike? Or, or what is your email or your website? How can someone, you know, kind of keep, you know, keep tabs like, hey, just to get involved on your side? Okay, well, my, uh, I'll start my email, mike.molina at mauicounty.us, uh, phone number 270-5507. Uh, then, of course, I have a uh, mike.molina Facebook address on uh, Maui County. So uh, those are just some some avenues uh, you can reach me. Um, I, I guess I'm an old-fashioned guy. I, I like to be, you know, feel free to call me or email <laughs> me. Uh, that's the easiest. Uh, I'm, I'm still getting my, my feet wet with the social media aspect of things. I'm getting better at it, you know. And so I, I have a, a young staff. Uh, so they, they're, nice. they're helping train me and get, get, get more into the 20, uh, 21st century. <laughs> nice. Right on. Nice. And uh, Byron, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Tell us yep. again about you and how people can contact you. Uh, Byron Yap with Axia Home Loans, NMLS number 860092. Can either be reached at byron.yap at axiahomeloans.com or my cell phone, 808-280-3491. 
And Thanks. I'm Clint Hanson. Go ahead. Oh, yes. I'm Clint Hanson with Maui Luxury Real Estate. This is Maui Real Estate Radio. You can listen to this in any show at MauiRealEstateRadio.com. But of course, we're broadcasting on the KAOI Radio Group, 7 a.m. at uh, 1110 a.m. radio station, 97.6 FM, 98.7 FM and 95.5 FM. Um, but of course, uh, thank you again so much for joining us. And uh, if you need to get in contact with me, my email is clinthansen, C-L-I-N-T-H-A-N-S-E-N 33 at gmail.com. Aloha, everybody.